Okay, so this summer uh, we've been looking at a number of stories through the Old Testament and we've come to that time in our meeting today when we're going to be looking at another story. But I need some help today to help me to remember the sequence of the story and the things that happened. So I need all the children to be able to help me today. So uh, if see most of the children are sitting down here already, uh, but if any of the other children would just like to come and sit down the front. Uh, I'll explain in a little while what's happening, but just while that, that is happening, um, who here likes things when they're quiet and peaceful, when there's time to sit in silence, not be disturbed? <laughs> what is that? Say the mums. Uh, okay, so quite a few people. Who here likes to be loud and to shout and to make noise? James and Steve and Joy and Lou and Lena. Wonderful stuff. Okay, so it's good. I'm glad we've got both types of people here this morning because I'm going to need both when I'm telling this story because I'm going to need some people who are good at being really quiet and I'm going to need some people who are really good at making an awful lot of noise. Okay, so the way we're going to do this, I'm actually going to divide the room into half. Side to my left, which would be your right. You're the quiet side. You're the peaceful side. Sorry, Joy. You can, you can move if you want. It's fine if you feel like you want to move. <laughs> so, um, so you're going to be the quiet side of the room. But that's not much fun just to sit there quietly. So I'm kind of thinking how we can represent that, particularly for the recording. So for the quiet side of the room, at points in the story, I'm going to need you to make a good shushing noise. So just a shh. So can we have a practice on three? One, two, three. Very good. Thank you. No need to practice anymore, it's perfect. Okay, the right hand side, you're the noisy side. So at points in the story, I'm gonna you, need you to make a noise. It's gotta be a fairly specific noise, and if you read your notices yesterday, I asked people to practice their trumpeting noise. So what we need is something along the lines of a It's good, right? So, <laughs> I've been practicing. Okay, so is everyone ready? On three, on this side, the best trumpet noise that you can make. Are you ready, kids? Make the best trumpet noise you can, ready? One, two, three. Brilliant, well done. I thought we'd have to practice again, but we don't. Okay, so sit on those for a minute, okay? But there'll be points in the story where I need this side to be quiet and shush, and this side to make a noise, but only when I say, okay? Only when I say. Okay, children. Are you able to help me to remember this story? Because I struggle to remember it all. What we've got, Steph has got a bag full of things. They're things that are going to help me to remember the story as we go through. So if each of you could take one of the things from the bag, I want you to keep hold of them. And they've got a number on them. And during the story, I've given my brother permission to interrupt me by shouting numbers at me. Each of those numbers corresponds to a, one of these props that's going to help me remember. So I need you to hold on to them and keep them safe. And then when the number is called, I need you to show me what you've got, what it is that you're looking after. Okay, and that's going to help as the story goes on. So keep hold of those and keep them safe. You have perhaps the most important job of the whole morning. Because otherwise I'm not going to be able to remember how the story goes. Okay, so last week... Uh, I've listened to, to what Mike shared and he was talking about how God brought the Israelites out of Egypt. He used Moses uh, to lead the people out. And so Pharaoh, the ruler of Egypt, had let them go, but then he changes his mind pretty quickly. And as the Israelites uh, are leaving, 
He sends a load of his soldiers, a load of chariots behind to chase them down and to take them back to Egypt. As the Israelites are walking, they're walking and walking, all of a sudden the land stops and all they can see in front of them is water. They come to the edge of the sea. And what are they to do? They can hear the Egyptians coming behind them. They look out and in front of them all they can see is water. How will they escape? So God tells Moses to hold his staff and to stretch his hand out over the water. And as he does so, the sea divides and the people walk through. And God brings his people through to safety on the other side. That's what Mike was looking at, at last week. That's all right. <laughs> God then makes a promise to the Israelites. He makes a promise that he will be their God and that he would be their people. And he gives them some commandments and some laws that they are to obey. They're things about the way that they should worship and the way that they should live. Things they should do and things that they shouldn't do. And these were requirements really that God had given to his people. And then God tells the people that he's going to lead them into the promised land. A land that's called Canaan. That's where God's going to lead them. And when they get there, they're going to be able to divide this land among themselves. So that's what God has promised to them. But over time, the people were disobedient. They were unfaithful. They were ungrateful. And they end up wandering around in the wilderness, not able to enter into the promised land. The journey from Egypt to Canaan should have taken them 11 days. It took them 40 years because of their disobedience. They were left wandering in the wilderness. Then Moses who had led them out of Egypt, led them across the Red Sea. He died, and a man named Joshua becomes the leader of God's people. And this is where we're picking up the story today. Okay, so we're looking at Joshua. God says to Joshua, he says, Now, this is the time I want you to cross the River Jordan. I want you to enter into the land that I've promised you. I want you to go into Canaan. And when you go there, there's going to be land and there's going to be cities, and I'm going to give you all of them. This is what I have promised for you. Number one. Number one. Who's got number one? Who's got number one on their prop? Can we have a look? What do we have? It's Arthur's. And what's Arthur's? Oh, Jakey's. What have you got? Arthur's. What have you got? No, just tell me what they are. We got some binoculars. Okay, so everyone. Well, well done. Clue number one. We've got some binoculars. Now the binoculars, they represent the spies. Because what Joshua does is he gets two spies and he asks them to go into the land to have a look around. To see what's there. To see kind of the lie of the land. He tells them particularly to go and look at the city of Jericho. And the city of Jericho was protected by these huge walls. To keep people from, from going in. But also to stop people from going out as well. If that's what they were wanting. So we've got these spies. They go and they have a look to find out what the enemy is doing. And they get into Jericho, and when they're in Jericho, they find a house of a woman named Rahab. Number two. Number two. Oh, who's, what have we got there? We have a piece of red cord. So we've got a piece of red cord. So something to do with Rahab, and we've got a piece of red cord. So what happens when the spies are in Jericho, the king finds out about them, and he wants them to be taken to him. But Rahab... She hides them in her house. She looks after them and she keeps them safe. And while the spies are in the house with Rahab, she tells them that the people of Jericho, they've heard all about Israel. They've heard all about their God. They've heard all about the amazing things that God has done in bringing them out of Egypt and safely across the Red Sea. And the people of Jericho were now terrified because they knew that God's people 
were coming. So much so that the whole city was shut down. No one could go in. No one could go out. They were on absolute lockdown. Rahab, she then asks the spies to remember her and her family. So that when Jericho is invaded, her and her family are kept safe. The spies, they agree, and what they do is they tell her to tie a piece of red cord. So that's where our red cords come in. She's to tie a piece of red cord in her window, so they know which house is hers. So when Jericho invade, she and her family would be safe. So then Rahab, she lowers the spies out of the window. They return to Joshua, and they tell him everything that they have seen and everything that they have heard. The morning comes. And Joshua leads the people to the edge of the river Jordan. They're ready now to enter into the promised land. And they wait there for three days. Number three. Who's got number three? Wow, what have we got? We have a gold box. Okay, we've got a gold box. Thank you very much. Excellent showing. Can everyone see? We have a gold box. Well done. So this box, it represents the Ark of the Covenant. And the Ark of the Covenant was where God dwelt. This was where God lived. So wherever his people went, they took the Ark with them. So wherever they went, God went with them. As the priests, they they were the first to step into the river and they carried the Ark with them. And as they did so, the waters parted and a way was made clear for the rest of the people to cross the river. Can you see? This is a bit very similar to what happened before with the Red Sea, where God parted the waters and the people walked through, and we see it again. So as the ark goes into the water, the waters part and the people walk through. So all of the people they cross onto the other side, and once the last person's foot was on the riverbank, the waters came back together once more. The people very good, number four. That's the interrupting I'm looking for. So number four, what do we have? Number four. What do we have? What have we got? A stone. Very well done. We have a stone. Seems like a bit of a strange thing to have, to remind us. But when they're on the other side of the Jordan, what happens is the people, they take 12 stones and they set them up as memorials on the bank. The reason they do this is so that when their children ask what the stones were for, they would retell them the story of what God had done in bringing them safely over to the other side of the Jordan. So generation to generation to generation would be reminded of what God had done. So the story of what had happened to the Israelites would be one that their children, it's their story as well, that they become a part of and they remember it. Uh, So it would tell of how God had brought them across the river and into the land that he had promised them. Number five. Number five. (gasps) Whoa. What do we have? Whoa, we have a sword. Well done. So a few days later, Joshua, he's standing near Jericho. He's looking out at the city. And there before him was, stand, was a man stood there with a sword in his hand. And Joshua says, pretty, going to be pretty scared. This was a big guy. And he says, are you for us or are you for you our enemy? He says, no, I'm for God. I'm the commander of the army of the Lord. He was part of God's army. And then the Lord tells Joshua that he's, them, he's going to give them Jericho. But there are specific instructions about what they are to do in order to get inside the city and to take the city. And these are the instructions that they were given. Number three, number six. Number three. Number three we've already had. Oh, I think that was number six you can hear uh, there. So number three was the Ark of the Covenant, if you remember. And number six is, uh, it's a trumpet. So it's a ram's horn trumpet. So this is what God tells the people. 
He says the people are to march around the city. They're to carry the ark with them. Okay, so they're to take the presence of God with them around the city. And as they walk there to walk in silence, where are my shushes? Are you there? One, two, three. Very good. So they're to walk in silence. And as they walk, seven priests are to blow the trumpets that were made of ram's horns. Where are my trumpeters? One, two, three. I couldn't have hoped for any better. And they're to do this for six days. To march around the city once in silence apart from the trumpeters. And then on the seventh day, they're to march around not once, but seven times. And as they finish the seventh, the trumpets are to give one long blast. And as they do so, the people were to shout as loud as they can. And what God says is when you do this, the walls of the city will come tumbling down. And you can go in and you can take the city. And Joshua did as he was instructed. This is where I need my shushes and my trumpeters. So is everyone ready? Let's get ready. Prepare yourselves. So. So I'm going to need my shushes and my trumpeters. And then at the end of day seven, I'm going to say, shout for the Lord has given you the city. And I want you to shout the word victory as loud as you can. Okay, we're not going to practice that. Let's not, let's save it for the real deal. Okay, so on day seven, I'll say, shout for the Lord has given you the city. I want everyone to shout victory. Has everyone got that? Okay, so day one, the ark is carried around the city walls. The people walk in silence. And the trumpets are blown. Having walked around the city once, they return to camp and they wait there until morning. Day two, the ark is carried around the city walls. The people walk in silence and the trumpets are blown. (laughs) Having walked around the city once, they return to the camp. Day three, four, five and six are the same. (laughs) And And then day seven comes. The ark is carried around the city walls. The people walk in silence. The trumpets are blown. They walk around seven times around the city. Get ready for this victory shout. There's a long blast on the trumpets. You ready to shout? Shout for the Lord has given you the city. And as they shout, the walls of the city come down. They enter into Jericho and they capture it, just as God had told them it would. Number two. Number two. We've had number two before. Does anyone remember what that is? We've got the red cord in Rahab's window. You see, Rahab is remembered by the spies. She and her family are kept safe. They're looked after. And the Bible tells us that they lived as part of God's people. As part of God's people there. So that is the story of the, of the walls of Jericho falling down. For the children, there's now, Steph has prepared a craft activity for you to do at the back of the hall. So if you'd like to do that, that's available. We'll need some parental supervision. The rest of you, while, while the children are working their way to the back, can you find your way to Joshua 5? And we're just going to spend a little bit of time looking a bit deeper into this story. By the way, you were all excellent with your shushing and your trumpeting. Thank you very much. So we're continuing our summer series this morning. We've called it God's Stories. And we're looking at some of the amazing stories of the Old Testament. But we're also recognising that each of these stories is a snapshot that makes up a much bigger picture. And when you bring them all together, they, they come together as part of God's story. So we've got these smaller snapshots, part of God's great story. 
What we see revealed in these God stories is God's nature. We see his character. We see the love story between him and his creation. We see his desire for his people. The rescue plan for a creation that's become corrupted by sin. We see his love, his plans and his purposes for the church. I'll say this. I think we need to know these God stories for ourselves. It's important for us to know them. But these are God stories that we need to make known because they're the good news that people need to hear. They are the good news that people need to hear. Two weeks ago, I was speaking on Noah. I felt there were, there were loads of directions I could have gone in in terms of what we focused on and what we looked at. It's a really rich story. But I focused on two aspects of God's nature and character that are established very early in God's story. But we see them repeated consistently throughout the rest of Scripture. The two things I focused on were the first was that God remembers his people. So that's established early. God remembers his people. And secondly, that God is a promise maker and a promise keeper. So this morning, I want to take a similar approach as we look to Jericho. What can we draw out of this in terms of God's nature and character, what it says about him and about his people? But we also need to look at the story for what it is. This is a story at a specific time for a specific people about a specific victory that God brought about. This was a victory for the Israelites at that point in their history. But there's also much that we can observe about God and his people that we can take hold of, that we can trust and that we can rely upon today. Okay, so things that we can take out about who God is and who he's called us to be. So Joshua 5, we're going to pick up from verse 13. It says that when Joshua was was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and he looked and behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. Joshua went to him and said, are you for us or for our adversaries? And he said, no, but I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped and said to him, What does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. Now Jericho was shut up inside and outside because of the people of Israel. None went out and none came in. And the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand with its king and mighty men of valor. You shall march around the city. All the men of war going around the city once. Thus you shall do for six days. Seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. And on the seventh day you shall march around the city seven times. And the priests shall blow their trumpets. And when they make a long blast with the ram's horn. When you hear the sound of the trumpet. Then all the people shall shout with a great shout. And the wall of the city will fall down flat. And the people shall go up. Everyone straight before him. And as we heard as we went through the story. A moment ago, they did as God had instructed them. And what happens? The walls came down and the city was theirs. Again, there were many different ways I could have gone with this. I probably feel I've got a whole other preach I could have done on it. But actually, my overriding observation, the thing that really stood out to me, and the thing I don't think that we can miss is this. And this is what I want us to focus on, is that God's ways are not our ways. And I think that is really clear from this story. God's ways are not our ways. Let me explain what I mean. See, I'm pretty confident that the battle plans that God had for Joshua, you will not find those in any books on military strategy. It will not be taught in military training as a route for success. I'm pretty sure of that. I want to take a moment to think about what God asked Joshua to do. To take a city with its walls. Surely... Surely Joshua had plans as he looked out over Jericho. He'd sent his spies into the land 
to find out what was going on, to gain an understanding, to get some plans and some strategy together. So I'm sure as he was looking out over that city, he would have had a plan of what he was going to do, planning, strategizing, getting everything clear in his head, ready to direct his army, to direct his men of war. And then God comes in and what God says is, not your strategy, but my strategy. Not your strategy, but mine. The strategy is this. The strategy is walking, it's trumpets, and it's shouting. Hear me, hear my heart when I say this. This plan makes no sense. As far as battle strategy goes, it appears completely ridiculous. The plan is absurd. The plan is absurd apart from God. Because God's ways are not our ways. I think we can be very quick to rely on our own cleverness, on our own insight, on our own experience. But what God wants is for us to trust him. I think that's what he was looking for from Joshua and for the Israelites. He was looking for for them to trust him in this. Because really, when you look at the plan for what it is, how on earth does walking around a city and making a noise make walls fall down? Humanly, that is impossible. But God is saying, trust me on this. Not the way that you would do it, but the way that I would do it. Before, gives Joshua his, before God gives Joshua his orders, he says something that we really just need to, to take a moment to recognise. He says that before Joshua and the people had to do anything, there is an assurance of victory because God had already given the city over. In those verses we read, I have given you the city, these are the instructions I want you to take. There's an assurance of victory there, which is where their confidence lies. So there's an assurance of victory before Joshua and the people had to do anything. Joshua believed what God had spoken and trusted him for the victory. And this is a snapshot of something that we see throughout scripture. So you know I was saying these God stories are kind of smaller snapshots of of the bigger picture. That we see God's character continuously and, and consistently through scripture. We see this aspect of him as well. In Hebrews 11, 29 to 34, it says that by faith, the people crossed the Red Sea as on dry land, but the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after, those, after they had been encircled for seven days. By faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, and put foreign armies to flight. What's the key to all of that? By faith. God used ordinary men and women throughout history to do extraordinary things through him. How? By faith. I want to ask you this. What battles, what trials, what decisions are you facing? And really what I want you to think about is what is God saying to you in these? Just as God was speaking to Joshua in the battle that they were about to face, what is God saying to you? Do you believe him? Do you trust him? And where are you putting your faith? Are you putting your faith in you or in him? These are just the questions that will come into my mind as I was working my way through this story. There's a period of time between the crossing of the Jordan and the taking of Jericho. You read that through, um, pretty much through chapters 4 and 5. 
And there's something that happens in there which seems a bit of a, a strange thing to do if you're preparing for battle, if you're getting your men ready for war. Because during this time, they take the men and they circumcise them. I've got no military or war experience, but I'm sure that in preparing yourself for imminent battle, circumcising all your soldiers is a definite no-no, okay? That, I, that I'm pretty sure. There is no way, there's no way these men would have been able to fight. They would have been incapacitated until they'd healed properly. This seems like a very strange time to be doing any circumcising, let alone all of the men in the nation. So why did God ask them to do it? We need to ask ourselves this. It's, not, it's a very strange thing to have happened. You see, it was of absolute importance to God that before Israel inherited the land that he had set apart for them, before any battles, before any conflict, it was so important that they knew that they were God's people and he was their God. This was a question about their identity. Circumcision, it's a, for, for, the, for the Jewish nation, for the nation of Israel, it's a, it's a reminder of the covenant relationship that God had made with Abraham. And the reason they had to do this is while they were in the wilderness, for those 40 years in the wilderness, all of the boys that were born, none of them were circumcised. It just wasn't something that they had done. So at this point in their history, they've got a whole generation of men that needed to be circumcised because it was this sign. It was this sign of this covenant relationship that God had made that he would have his people. You see, at this point in history, as they're committing themselves to basing their, their life in the land that he had promised, this is what they're doing. They're preparing themselves. This is the land God has given us. This is where we're going to be established. This is where we're going to be based. This is the land that God had promised us. But before that, they're committing themselves to basing this life on their identity as God's people. That's what they're doing. They're establishing themselves as God's people first, and then they're going into the battles. Then they're going into the war. Again, a question for us. Before we uh, do anything else, before any battles we face, before any decisions we have to make, what or who is our identity in? I think we need to ask ourselves this. Who do we belong to, is the question. For Israel, they belonged to God, and they re-established that before they stepped into the promises and the inheritance that he had for them. So the question here, before the battles you face, ask yourselves, where is your identity? Who do you belong to? And as God, as, and God has promised his presence to his people. I said earlier that God's strategy, was to take, God's strategy to take Jericho involved walking trumpets and a loud shout, but it also involved something else. It involved number three that we had. It involved the ark. Walking trumpets, a loud shout, but the ark, it was the dwelling place of God. It was the presence of God with the people. The ark was God living among his people. Wherever they went, God went with them. You see, right at the heart of the procession around the city... Around the procession, around the city walls, right at the heart of it was God with his people. God's not a casual observer. He's not looking in in this, in this situation here. He's not looking in from a distance. He was with them as they marched. He went with them. Another question for you. When you make plans, do you make plans with God? With God at the centre? Do you allow him to shape the plans and the purposes for your life? Or 
Do we make plans and, and think, hang on a sec, we'd better tag God in on this, make sure God's included in some way? Or do, when we make plans, do we exclude him completely and just rely on our own cleverness, our own experience, those sorts of things? I know these might be fairly challenging questions, but I think they're good ones to ask ourselves from time to time. Andrew Wilson, when we were at New Day, he did a brilliant talk, uh, and I'd encourage you to listen to it. I might send the link out to it. And he looks at the story of 1 and 2 Samuel, but from the perspective of the story of the ark. And in 1 and 2 Samuel, what he's looking at, it's called, he's titled it Book of Samuel, God Living With Us. And actually how we are to treasure having, having God with us, to treasure the presence of God. And what you see in 1 and 2 Samuel is that the, the people really disregard the presence of God. They treat the ark a bit like a lucky charm going into battle. And when they start to treat the presence of God like that, the consequences you can see through that there are pretty severe consequences for it. And this talk that Andrew Wilson does is absolutely brilliant. Just about really treasuring the presence of God. When you're making plans, making sure you're making the plans with God, allowing God to shape the plans. So I'll send the link out. I think it's a great one, but I just wanted to, to mention that one. You see the victory at Jericho. <coughs> it clearly shows that God's ways are not our ways. It shows that all things are possible through faith in God and his promises. But it also shows us that God longs to dwell amongst his people. And as I say, this story is a snapshot of a much bigger picture. It's a couple of chapters within the whole of God's story. See, around 1400 years after Jericho fell. So 1400 years after the story we've been looking at this morning. God's people found themselves living under the rule of another empire. They were waiting, they were longing for the saviour who had been promised, longing for the saviour who had been prophesied, <coughs> and he had been prophesied and promised for generations. They were waiting for a saviour who would bring freedom from oppression and would bring destruction to their enemy. <coughs> Excuse me. They hoped, they prayed, and they waited for someone to come and to destroy this empire. As they were waiting, a child was born. Not many people would have noticed this. He was born in a town. It was a small town. The population would have been between 300 to 1,000 people. And this child and his family, they moved to, a, to a, another town. Again, a small town, a population of around 400. And this is where the child grew up. This was a town of little importance. It was a town of very little significance. It was a town where people questioned whether does anything good actually come out of this place. It was that sort of a town. It was a town that paled into insignificance when you compared it with cities like Jerusalem, which had 60,000 people living in it. It was the centre of uh, pretty much everything that was going on at the time. That was Jerusalem, that was the place to be. Not this little town of 400. What good can come out of that place? And this child had a name. And this child's name is Jesus. And as Jesus grew into a man, he gathered people to himself. He went from village to village, town to town, declaring that the kingdom of God was coming. He publicly proclaimed that his father is God himself, and that he is God's son, and that God had sent him into the world, not to condemn it, but that the world would be saved through him. This was what he was saying about himself. He said that he was the saviour that they had been waiting for, but not everyone saw it, because it didn't happen the way that they were expecting it to. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks. 
You see, Jesus, he came promising salvation, proclaiming the kingdom. He challenged the the religious rulers and teachers of the time. He upset a lot of people with the things that he said because he didn't fit the mould that they expected the Saviour to come in. And the people that he upset, they had him tried uh, as a blasphemer, got him sentenced to death by crucifixion. And Jesus was beaten, he was mocked, he was spat on, he was stripped naked, a crown of thorns were placed on his head, and nails were driven through his wrists and his feet, securing him to the wooden cross that was raised high for all to see. And there above his head, nailed to the cross, was a sign. And on that sign it said, Jesus of Nazareth, that little insignificant Nazareth, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. And again, that question would have come to people's minds. Can anything good come in Nazareth? And at that moment, it would have have appeared that no, nothing good can come of that place. Here was Jesus, the self-proclaimed saviour, helpless and dying on a cross. And then just as he's about to breathe his last, he says, it is finished. And it looks like it has finished. It looks like it's the end. His body's taken down from the cross and is laid in the tomb. And what do his followers do now? They're left wondering, what do we do? Jesus had said all these things and now he's gone. He said he's come to save us and to bring freedom. And to bring release for the captive. But he's gone. What is going on? What do we do now? Day one, there's silence. Day two, there's silence. It appears that everything that Jesus had said has disappeared with him into the grave. And then day three, there's an empty tomb, there's a risen Jesus, and there's a victory secured. This victory was not over earthly rulers or leaders or authorities or empires as many had been waiting for. This is a victory over sin and death. This is a victory that makes it possible for people to have a relationship with God through putting their faith and their trust in Jesus. You see, Jesus hadn't won freedom for one generation or two or three. He has won freedom once for all, freedom that is eternal, freedom that will never have an end. That's the victory that Jesus has won. That is the freedom that Jesus has won. 1 Corinthians 1. (laughs) 1 Corinthians 1, 18. Paul picks up on this because he says, he says, actually, the way that God has chosen to work is not the way that man would choose. The salvation that Jesus has won on the cross is not the way that people were expecting. And actually, the way that Jesus won victory, when you're looking in from the outside, it looks absurd. It looks ridiculous. How could what Jesus went through achieve anything? let alone anything good. But Paul says this, he says, For the word of the cross is folly, it's foolishness, to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God... The world did not know God through his wisdom. It pleased God that through the folly or foolishness of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to Jews 
and and folly to, to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. We see that in the story of Joshua and Jericho. Not, not our strategy, but his. And we see it again through Jesus, because this is not what the world was expecting. But God used an, God used an instrument of death to bring about security of life. That's how our God works. He takes the wisdom of the world and he makes it look like foolishness. He takes what we would see as weakness and he turns it into strength. That is the God who gave everything for us. That is the God we belong to. That is the God in whom our identity is found. And as I said, the overriding theme through everything that I was thinking about this morning is this. Is that God's ways are not our ways. And thank God for that. Thank God for that. Can we have the band up? We're going to come back into a time of worship. Just as they're coming up. I also want to say this. I want to say that today God is not living in a box. He once was among uh, with his people through the ark, but today God is not living in a box. He lives in the person of Jesus Christ, who has now poured out his spirit on all people, and now the church is the place where God lives. God lives in you and me, corporately as the church. He's not living in a box anymore. You know, when Jesus appeared to his disciples after the resurrection, he's speaking to his disciples. Matthew 28. He comes to them and he says that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And then he says this. He says, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. God dwells with us. Wherever we go, whatever battles, whatever struggles, whatever challenges we face, whatever decisions we have to make, Jesus has promised to be with you always. Just as God was with Joshua and Israel, he is with you now. Let that be where your confidence is. Make your plans with Jesus. Don't rely on your wisdom. Don't rely on the wisdom of the world. Rely on him and his leading. You see, Jesus... Jesus of little, insignificant Nazareth, who was rejected by some, he was despised by some, he was murdered on a cross like a common criminal. Yet now, that same Jesus is exalted, given the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. God's ways are not our ways. Let's have confidence in that. Should we worship? I, f- I need to worship. Should we 